So welcome, everyone, to the very first episode of the Aaron Fox Schiff Private Companies Group podcast. This podcast is hosted by partner Adam Diederich and myself, Bill D'Angelo. Adam, for our listeners today, can you give a brief introduction of yourself and your practice? I am a complex litigation group partner in the Chicago office of Errant Fox Schiff. I focus on avoiding and litigating business disputes. My work often involves disputes among owners of private companies. Which is our topic for today. So I'm a corporate securities group partner in the Los Angeles office specializing in mergers and acquisitions, private equity, venture capital, and fund formation. The verticals that I work in the most are entertainment and media, tech and software, and cannabis. Our topic today is that we're looking at issues and solutions to disputes between owners in closely held companies. So I guess to start it off for our listeners, what is a closely held company traditionally? At the highest level, a closely held company is a company that has a small number of owners. So maybe a handful of owners. It's also a private company, which means that its stock or ownership interests are not publicly traded. In addition, most closely held companies that I've dealt with have owners who are also involved in managing the company, often on a day-to-day basis. They're involved in operational decisions, as opposed to, say, a large public company that has separate ownership and management. And when you start working on a project with a closely held company, let me back up for a second. We're calling it a privately held company, but it could be, for our purposes, it could be a limited partnership. It could be a general partnership. It could be an LLC. It could be corporation, S-corp or C-corp. All those are covered in your definition of a closely held company. That's correct. They come in many different forms, different types of business associations, and they're governed by the laws of different jurisdictions. Are there, for the most popular jurisdictions, Delaware, obviously, and then some people use Nevada. Unfortunately, in my practice, I do run into people that have formed California corporations. That raises a whole host of specific issues. But do you find, you know, before we dive into what the conflicts are and how to pre-manage them, is there a concept of a statutory closed corporation? Depends on the jurisdiction. There are some jurisdictions that have statutory closed corporations where there are specific rules in a statute that was enacted by a legislature governing these types of entities. And in many other jurisdictions, there's also what is referred to as a common law closely held corporation or closely held company. And that simply means that the legislature did not enact a statute on that issue, but instead the courts have come up with some separate rules for these types of companies. Got it. For the companies that fall under a statutorily defined closed corporation, what are some of the, without going into the individual jurisdictions, but what are the kinds of rules that business owners will find if they decide to form their company in a statutory regime? In order to be a close or closely held company under uh, statutory rules, often the company has to satisfy the criteria that I set out at the beginning. There has to be a limited number of owners. Often there has to be just a single class of ownership. There's usually not a separation between ownership and management under closely held statutes. Which is going to be key to our discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And often there are also restrictions on the selling or transfer of ownership units. Do you find in the statutory and maybe even the common law closed corporation, are there specific provisions that provide for 
protection of minority shareholders in a closely held company in the typical jurisdiction? It depends, but generally speaking, no, it's a problem. Often the law does not provide for simple, clean protections for a minority owner of a closely held company. And by minority owner, I mean someone who owns less than a controlling share of the company's equity. Got it. Maybe one last question before we dive into the type of disputes. In your mind, I mean, I have in my mind an example, but for litigation risk, what is the structure of a closely held company that you find the most dangerous? I mean, in my opinion, it's the pure two owners with 50-50. No one has 50.1%. And that potentially creates all kinds of deadlocks, which we can talk about as we go through this. But I was just curious, in your experience as a litigator, what is the worst case ownership structure? Well, it depends on what perspective you're looking at it from. If we're looking at it from the perspective of an owner, I think the worst situation to be in is to be a minority owner in any structure without rights to liquidate your interest. But from the company's perspective, what's messiest, it's the 50-50 situation that you described, which would mean that at any moment, if the owners don't get along, there can be a stalemate or a deadlock and the business can no longer function. And in that situation, it's the most common situation where a court may actually order a dissolution of the company if eventually the owners don't get along or agree to sell and resolve their dispute. So I know this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because I do want to talk about, from your experience, the uh, most likely disputes are. But before we get there, explain to our listeners that aren't familiar with this, what is a corporate dissolution that's ordered by a court or an arbiter? If a court orders a dissolution, that in short means the, the court is ordering that the company be liquidated, that its assets be sold, that the proceeds of the sale go to the owners, and that everybody be done with the company, which is often a bad result for the company, especially if the company is profitable as an actual business, as a going concern. So that's like the nuclear bomb situation, pretty much, a dissolution. Yeah. It is. It's the worst possible scenario. And sometimes it's an okay scenario for someone who's in a minority position, if they can push it in that direction, usually because that's the leverage they have in order to barter, in order to figure out a way to exit themselves and to get something in exchange for their share. Got it. Got it. Why don't we switch gears? Um, I know I want to hear from the breadth of your experience. What are some of the examples of ownership disputes or conflicts that led to litigation, either litigation through a court or arbitration that you've encountered? What are the most likely sources of conflict in a close corporation from the ownership perspective? Well, companies are owned by people. They're often owned by people who are family members or friends. So just thinking about human nature, there are a couple of really prominent categories I've seen. First and foremost is disputes involving money and power. Someone thinks they deserve to be paid more from the company. Someone doesn't like that, say, their sibling or their friend has attained more power running the company. That's the most common category of disputes. And I suspect you've seen those types of disputes as well. I've seen many. I've pre-litigated several of those types. I've been involved in two or three like really bad 50-50 scenarios. So what you're saying in this first category is money or power. From a corporate perspective, if you're in a 50-50 split from a distribution of profits, um, the owners would be entitled to equal shares. But when you're talking about how to manage a company, often you need one or two leaders. That can go crossways with the ownership structure. 
Let me just give you an example from the 50-50 dispute context. Let's say you and I are 50-50 owners of an LLC, a limited liability company. Although we own 50% of the equity, you are off lawyering and you decided to let me be the sole manager of the company. And I decide that the company is successful and it's mostly successful because of my work. I'm happy for your investment bill, but I'm thinking instead of paying out a large amount of dividends every year, distributions of the company's uh, profits, we should keep most of that money in the company. And perhaps I have the right to make that decision as a manager under the operating agreement. But because of all the great work I'm doing, all my time and effort, I've decided to pay myself a hefty salary, a lot of compensation for the work I'm doing as manager. So I'm deriving the primary economic benefit, at least in the short term, from the company, even though we're 50-50 owners. Yeah, I've actually had that very scenario... It's tough, right? I mean, a lot of what goes into that question is the structure of the operating agreement. If the LLC has an op, which it should, but if it does have an operating agreement, people don't always think ahead of time about in the limited liability company structure. Normally, managers have a lot of discretion. Sometimes they have almost all the discretion and a very limited number of decisions are left up to the LLC members. I mean, in smaller companies, I would just choose to go with a member-managed LLC to obviate the agency problem between management and ownership. But I just did a fund that is investing in real estate, has three equity investors, and they went with a hybrid management structure. What they did was they created a manager or we created a manager for them that had day-to-day operational control. But then we built in protections in the LLC agreement that things that you could only do when you had a unanimous agreement from the equity owners. Is that something that you see? I do see that. And actually, before I answer that more fully, tell me about some of the protections that you built in for the members. So some of the protections that I like to put in there are unanimous consent of the equity owners for specific financial decisions. So manager can only borrow up to X amount of dollars before they need to get member approval. Capital expenditures, the manager can only spend X number of dollars until they reach a threshold and then they need equity owner approval. You may see for key contracts for the company. So any employment contract above 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, whatever the right number is for that type of entity and its expected business. And then probably the biggest one is not financial. It's more structural. And that's either admitting new members or allowing current members to liquidate a partial or whole amount of their position. And I think we'll end up discussing that later. But I mean, certainly in the LLC scenario, admitting a new member, it's like a partnership. So that it's a very personal decision and people don't like to give managers full discretion on that. I think those are the key ones, structural and financial. You know, the biggest one on the structural side would be not selling or liquidating the business without unanimous approval. That's probably the biggest one I see. You mentioned that in that situation, membership was separate from management. Did you build in any protections for the members in the event they didn't like what the managers were doing, including the right to remove the manager? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer that I usually resolve upon, well, it depends on the number of members, but it could either be unanimous or it could be majority approval to remove the manager, just depending on the structure. It's a 50-50, then it's unanimous to remove the manager. I have seen, and I don't see it a lot, but I have seen some crazy provisions that basically say the manager can't be removed except for blank, blank, blank. And that blank, blank, blank might be intentional misrepresentation, fraudulent behavior, breach of fiduciary duty. And, and I I bracket that last one because most LLCs will have a clause that removes 
removes fiduciary duty for members. So it would have to be specifically with respect to the manager. But under Delaware law, managers don't have a statutory fiduciary duty to an LLC. It's trickier. I mean, with corporations, if you're talking about management, it gets a lot easier to go through those categories of duty of loyalty and financial behavior. I agree. Although in my experience, most of these closely held companies are actually LLCs. So we see a lot of creative structures and often there's not much of a fiduciary duty type claim based on the statutory framework. Right, right. Sure. So we talked about disputes over money and power. I know that you have in your mind some other types of disputes. What else do you see in your litigation practice, whether it's pre-litigation or actually litigating specific disputes? What are some of the other categories of dispute? Two other common categories come to mind. The next one is pretty closely related to the money and power disputes. Disputes over personalities. If these companies are typically owned by family members, by close friends, personal issues can trickle over into the company and vice versa. Company issues can become very personal. So it doesn't have to necessarily be over money or power. It could be over personal jealousy. It could be over siblings who are co-owners and parents who are also part of the ownership group. Perhaps one of the siblings marry someone that the parents don't like, or one of the siblings has children and the other sibling doesn't. Those things can change the personal dynamic, which can then affect the management of the company. So it's interesting you bring that up about family members. One of my most difficult close entity, it wasn't a corporation, it was close entity dispute over owners, was I represented a estate of a well-known actor who will remain nameless. Assured, if I told you it was, you'd recognize them. And there were, I believe, five children that inherited the estate. And one of the children was named as the trustee of the trust, and everyone else was a beneficiary. And of course, the trustee also had his pro rata share of the ownership as a beneficiary. So he was both trustee and a beneficiary. And there was a situation where the trust had invested like 25% of its assets, usable assets into some real estate projects. And the four other siblings were adamantly against this because it was not a very liquid asset. So it was not churning out income. But the trustee beneficiary was thinking very long term, not just with respect to present distributions, but saving the corpus of the estate for grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That was the size of the estate. It was a large nine-figure estate. And you know, from the trustee's point of view, and we represented the trust, so I worked with the trustee, there was this real conflict. It goes back to your first one on money. In air situations, I think one of the things you find often is this tension between preserving capital value and paying out income. And then you have the added dynamic, which you just talked about, of family members, jealousy. Four of them are pissed that only one was named a trustee. There weren't co-trustees. And that created a lot of animus that the parents could have obviated either by you know appointing additional professional trustees or, in fact, not allowing any of the beneficiaries to be trustees. Absolutely. That's a whole nother category of issues where not only are there siblings or family members who are co-owners of a business, but having trusts held for the benefit of those siblings or family members, and then having different rights when it comes to the trust, perhaps having the oldest sibling as trustee of every trust. 
That was my situation. The oldest brother was the sole trustee, which was not a good structure. I mean, it was it should not have been designed like that. At a minimum, I would have added in a professional co-trustee from like Northern Trust or JP Morgan, something like that to make the decisions appear to be more equitable and fair to everyone rather than having one beneficiary also be the trustee. We could do an entire podcast just on heirs and trustees running family succession businesses. That, that, of course, is its own topic. I know there was one more, and this one I think is very interesting. What is for you the third category that you see? And it may be the most egregious category. It is the most egregious category. The third category I'm thinking of is wrongdoing, alleged, perhaps actual wrongdoing by one or more of the owners of a closely held company. This can involve wrongfully competing with the company, contrary to fiduciary duties or non-compete covenants. It can mean embezzling funds from the company. Envision any type of financial type wrongdoing, and you'll see that in the closely held business context. So this one I think is very ripe for anecdotes. What is the worst? Again, without naming the client, what is the worst wrongdoing you've seen alleged in a closely held company or family-run company? There are there are several egregious examples I can think of. The one I'll share was one that I dealt with earlier in my career. Client was a minority owner of a family business, and the client suspected that one of the family members was diverting some of the company's core assets, its customer relationships, to a series of shell companies that the family member owned himself in order to reap the benefits himself. You could imagine the feeling of a business partner potentially essentially stealing from your business. Add on to that the business partner being an immediate family member. So how did you resolve that? How did it shake out? And what was your involvement? As with all these types of disputes, which often I refer to as a business divorce scenario, and it is, it's like a divorce and it can be as personally meaningful as the divorce in the marital context. It ultimately depends on the client's objectives and leverage and willingness to fight. I spend most of my time litigating, but I also try to help clients avoid litigation. And in this situation, we decided that the assets of the company were not voluminous enough to make full-fledged litigation worthwhile. Put differently, if we had brought legal claims, even if we thought our claims were good, because of the various provisions in the operating agreement relating to indemnification and reimbursement, of attorney's fees, it very well could have been a lawsuit where the business ended up using all of its assets and paying all the assets to lawyers to fight over who was right and who was wrong. So we decided not to go the litigation route in that case. And did you end up selling the business? We did. We spent a lot of time figuring out what leverage we had and also speaking with other family members carefully without making overt accusations where we didn't have direct clean proof, pushing things in the direction of selling in order to salvage the personal relationship. And because the business was at a stage where the assets were ripe to be sold, we eventually did succeed in pushing all the family members to agree that a sale to a third party, not a sale to one of the family members, was in everybody's best interest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen that happen several times. I mean, this brings up a question that's been surfacing throughout our entire conversation. And I know we're getting long on time. So I wanted to get to this last topic, which is on the practice tip or practice discussion of how do we as lawyers in the pre-planning stages of business formation, and then even after the business has been formed, what can we do to reduce 
the litigation profile? What can we do to reduce the chance that there'll be a litigation? And if there is a litigation, are there steps that you can take in the pre-planning phase to basically resolve that conflict without having to do a full-fledged court case or arbitration? This is an important question. It's a question that I've learned how to answer based on all the litigations in this context that I've dealt with. So if, if someone is forming a closely held business, regardless of whether it's with their best friend or their only brother or sister or with a parent, it's best to plan for the worst. Even though you hope it doesn't happen, it's always possible that things can fall apart, that something can go wrong. So the governing document for the business, for an LLC, the operating agreement, it should include procedures to resolve disputes so that disputes don't escalate. And it should involve some type of mechanism that allows the owners to exit in a relatively clean fashion to get a quick and easy business divorce if they want to without having to go scorched earth and effectively blowing up the company and the personal relationships. So are you referring to what I see in my practice, especially in LLCs? I have this in almost every closed corporation, a buy-sell agreement exhibit or a buy-sell agreement section of the operating agreement. In corporations, obviously, it wouldn't be in the operating agreement. It would be somewhere else. But are you thinking along the lines of a formal buy-sell provision? That's right. If the parties are planning ahead for the worst and thinking that there may need to be a way to get a business divorce... So this isn't just to resolve smaller disputes. If there's a need to get divorced and go their separate ways so that not all of them own the company together anymore, a buy-sell agreement is what we typically recommend. And you mentioned it. Can you explain what a buy-sell agreement is? A buy-sell agreement is an agreement the owners of a corporation or LLC or partnership make in advance that says under certain circumstances, death of an owner, disability of an owner, business dispute between the partners or equity owners that allows one partner to buy out the other partner or a group of partners. And I've got questions for you on the buy-sell agreement, but just a couple things that I see, you know, one of the key problems with buy-sell agreement is how do you finance the purchase in a company that doesn't have a lot of cash flow? So what do you do about financing? And then the other one that I see is also a financing issue is when you have the death of a member or equity owner, what I generally try to provide for is I encourage the owners to purchase life insurance or a group life insurance policy on the owners that's payable to the either the company or the owners. So buy-sell agreements can have two different ways to resolve an ownership dispute. One, the company can buy the shares, and the other is that the party that's not creating the dispute buys the shares of the disputing party. So there's two different ways to structure a buy-sell agreement. And one reason why you might go with the company buys the shares is the company itself might be a business that has the financial ability to pay a lump sum payment or down payment and then some, let's say, earn-out payments over a period of time. But you're banking on the credit worthiness of the company. If you allow the equity owners to buy each other out, sometimes that's harder and you run into financing problems where often the agreement provides that the seller will take back a note. And that note may have provisions that if payment's not made or there's a default, that it may unwind the transaction. But those are the two things I see. I see it either the company has the right or the other equity owner has the right in the buy-sell. And then I always encourage people to work on the financing side because that's one area where even if you do have a buy-sell, agreement, if there's an inability to make the payments, it functionally doesn't work. 
Yeah, that's right. And what can you do when there's no means to finance a buy-sell mechanism? Well, you hit on one, which is the sale to a third party, a third party that has the liquidity to buy everybody out at the full cash price. I think that that, I would say in about 30% of the 50-50 disputes I've had, we've gone the route of selling the company to a third party, precisely because of liquidity. But on the ones where I've done it where, I mean, I did one last year with a 50-50 and we just gave them a cash down payment and we paid them a note for two years. And the seller, we had a buy-sell, so it was already built in that they would take back a note. It was just the question was how long the note and how much the company could afford. And so we negotiated that piece of the allocation between the down payment and the deferred payments. By take back a note, you're referring to the seller taking a promissory note from the buyer and the promissory note provides payment terms over a period of time? That's correct. And remedies in the event of a default. If you're putting together this buy-sell and you're thinking about risk of payment under certain defaults, whether it's you know one-time default, a certain number of days or multiple defaults in a row, there has to be some remedy that doesn't allow the buyer to not pay and get away with continuing to own the shares. So under a default scenario, you might have a clawback where it unwinds the transaction or it gives some of the equity back. But I find that even if you can get the buy-sell agreement in place, there's still just practical considerations. Either the other partner has to have cash flow to do the deal, the seller has to be flexible to provide terms, or you allow the company to buy the interest. I like the company provision because often companies have more access to capital, either through debt or issuing new shares. The other thing that I was going to mention on the buy-sell is you may have a situation where you're anticipating that someone will want liquidity down the road. And so you need to build that in that you address the issue of transfer of ownership. So let's say someone decides for like, I think one that you might bring up is divorce. So like, let's say one of the two 50-50 partners gets divorced and they're in a community property state, the spouse of the divorcing party may have a 50% interest in that 50%, effectively giving them 25% of the company. And a lot of owners don't want to continue to be in business with the divorced spouse. That can be a very adverse situation. The most famous case I can think of, I didn't work on this representation, but when one of the founders of Kratos Artist Agency, the largest talent agency in the world, one of the three founding partners got a very messy divorce. And that partner was able, through his access to the capital markets, to borrow enough money to buy off the spouse. But it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, it was a mess. Absolute mess. It was just completely overanalyzed and covered in the press for months. So there was a lot of pressure on the remaining partner to buy out the departing spouse. Then the other business owners, they don't want a rogue spouse who now may have personal animosity to muckrake with inside the business. So there's a lot of reasons. Of course. And even if that spouse doesn't want to muckrake, they probably don't understand the business as much as the owners. And they very well may not care about the long-term interests of the business as a going concern. They may want cash as soon as possible. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes people will take less cash to actually get the cash. Like their 50% ownership might be on a valuation based at, let's say, $50 million out of 100, but they don't want a deferred payment. They don't want any risk of payment and they don't want to ever deal with their spouse ever again. And sometimes you'll see people take less than the stated value or the, if you get a, an opinion from an investment banker or a valuation firm in terms of like, sometimes like that will be a key provision in the, in the buy sell is that to value the business, you will go to a third party to value the business. But what I was saying is, is that some departing spouses sometimes will take less than the appraised value of their shares just to get out. 
that's a really interesting and important point because what to me it signifies is that a 50% ownership interest in a business could actually be worth a lot less than 50% of the value of the business, particularly if there aren't well-drafted governing documents that easily let one of the partners liquidate his or her interest. In other words, if there isn't a buy-sell or some other mechanism to get a business divorce, the value of a 50% interest could be substantially less because there's no way to get access to the cash value. Absolutely. I mean, I see that fairly often. I mean, obviously, I'm not a litigator, but I see the run-up to the litigation. And you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that, as I said, that there's time value of money, there's risk of payment. I just did an M&A deal where I represented a 33% owner in a fairly large business that got sold. And the offer from the purchaser was a down payment of like 50% of the value and the remaining 50% paid over five years. And our client didn't trust their former partners. They had no buy-sell. And as the M&A process went through, we were in a deadlock in terms of being able to agree to the transaction. And we eventually were able to negotiate it. But where I'm going with this is, is that my client, who was a 33%, one-third equal owner, decided to take 100% cash at closing. And for that, they took like a 35% haircut. It's often a reasonable, rational decision just to take the sure thing and move on with your life. Yeah. And then, you know, we as lawyers can help on that in terms of like assessing the risk of the M&A structure, what's coming in, giving them our opinion. I mean, there's a lot of things that lawyers can do. But I think, you know, in order, this is kind of getting close to wrapping up. So I wanted to ask you, you know, again, as a litigator looking at the corporate process, besides the buy-sell agreement, are there any other things we can do as lawyers to obviate that coming conflict? How do we prevent that? Other than the buy-sell, I think the buy-sell is the best mechanism and it has limitations and it's imperfect, but it's better than nothing. What else do you see or would you recommend or tell someone like me as a corporate partner, hey, Bill, don't finish those documents without letting me review them so I can give you my input on litigation pre-management? Yeah, there are several issues I look for when I'm looking at these governing documents, and this may actually be a good topic for another podcast. One of the key issues I'd think about here, though, before you get to an actual business divorce, maybe you can avoid having a buy-sell. Maybe there's a way to salvage the business relationship. In order to do that, there ought to be some type of tie-breaking or dispute resolution mechanism for ordinary disputes. Let's say you and I own a business together and we're not getting along over whether to hire a new employee to manage a certain division of our business. We're at a stalemate. We can't figure it out. Instead of destroying the business and maybe ending our business relationship, if we have a mechanism in the contract to resolve this type of dispute, it could be having a third, perhaps manager of an LLC. LLC come in just for this purpose. It could involve a very quick arbitration type process where in a short period of time, the parties agree that a neutral decision maker will come in and make this decision. Some type of formalized process that is quick and inexpensive and that the parties view as fair and legitimate can go a long way toward moving things along. Because even in this example, if let's say I don't want to hire this new person, I think I can handle it myself. If I lose, if I'm heard by a neutral third person and you win, I'm more likely to view that as legitimate and to move on with the business than if you and I just fight it out ourselves over an extended period of time. I like what you say there, which is it has to be perceived as legitimate. So you have to create a process that's fundamentally fair in form and substance. It's quick. So quick goes to when you're trying to manage a business and you have important decisions to make, you can't have key disputes taking months or years to resolve. And then there's the tag to that also is 
that this process prevents the business from spending a large amount of its capital or revenue on dispute resolution, which can be really damaging. Correct. Those are the key traits of a successful process. And in many instances, I've realized that even though my primary background is in litigation, thinking about all these risks and issues that can come up in litigation is the best way to benefit my clients. What can go wrong? How do we resolve it so that we can avoid disputes or minimize the scope of a dispute before we actually have to get to litigation? Well, I think that's a really good spot to end on. I think, you know, we've started out discussing the, the things that can come up, what the structures are, what the potential pre-litigation management steps are. Is there a final word that you want to take on this? I'm okay where we are, but I just want to leave it open to you that if there's a final message to entrepreneurs other than, you know, plan. What would you say? I just want to emphasize that no matter how close you are with your partner, no matter how much you trust each other, no matter how much you don't want to pay a lawyer, it's almost always going to be worth it to hire a lawyer to help you come up with simple governing documents that plan for the worst. And I hope that if you haven't done that, you don't come down the path where you have to litigate one of these big disputes. But it's 1% or less of the cost to plan things up front the right way than to take it to arbitration or litigation. Well, Adam, I think that's a great ending tip for our listeners, both lawyers and clients. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we look forward to our next episode.